We are here in Banner Elk, according to the Postal Service. <laughs> yes. Um, with Zachary Vernon, who is an assistant professor in the Department of English at Appalachian State University. You have lived here three years. Mm -hmm. You are not originally from Appalachia. You're originally from, you're originally a coastal person. Yes, I grew up on the coast of South Carolina. Um, a small uh, touristy town called Polly's Island, which is sort of halfway in between Charleston and Myrtle Beach on the coast. Yeah, I'm familiar. Mm. So you have lived in spaces, and we'll get into this, that tourist-like. Yes. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, well, today we're here, and just our listeners, if they've listened to our episode about Boone earlier in the season, they know a little bit about the town, but can you just explain the surrounding area and how you came to be here, um, just to set up for our listeners where we are, and we're going to hear an excerpt of some of your award-winning work in a bit, so sort of set the scene for us in terms of where we are. Yes, so I um, finished graduate school in 2014. Um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill. Um, so I was in the Chapel Hill area for nine years um, and then got a job just outside of Boston, just north of Boston, uh, right after graduate school and moved up there and really thought I was going to be there long term. And then this job came up. And somehow the stars aligned and I got it. And so I scrambled back down to North Carolina um, and have been here very happily for the past three years. So this is my fourth summer in Boone. And what is the surrounding area of Boone? What is Boone like for people who aren't familiar with it? So Boone, this area is often referred to as the high country. Um, and various towns seem to claim that they are the jewel of the high country. Um, so you'll see downtown Boone, you'll see the signs that say, Boone, jewel of the high country. But this area is sort of known as the high country. So we're right in the corner of North Carolina, not in the westernmost corner, but at the sort of northwesternmost corner. Um, so we're about two hours um, northeast of Asheville. And the elevation, sort of standard Southern Appalachian elevation, mountains. It is the Blue Ridge. Yes. Not to be confused with the Smokies. Yes. The Smokies are farther west. Yes. Yeah. So we're in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We're in Southern Appalachia. The elevation, somewhere in the town of Boone, I'm not sure where exactly, but somewhere it is 3,333 feet above sea level. Um, and then the highest point in the area is Grandfather Mountain, which is, I think, closer to 6,000. So Boone is sort of down in a little valley. So there are all these little towns in the high country. Um, there's Blowing Rock, Banner Elk, Boone, West Jefferson, and they each have a very different sort of feel and a very different population. So. Blowing Rock is a very affluent town. Lots of second homers, lots of retirees. It's a much older population. Banner Elk is where the two big ski resorts are. So it's sort of like a, an interesting um, ski town and sort of ski bum community. Um, and then Boone is the college town and maybe a little bit 
grittier, although gritty is probably a terrible word to describe it, but compared to the affluence of Blowing Rock, it is the gritty young college town. And so you yourself, um, in the excerpt we're going to hear um, from North Carolina Literary Review, it's Confessions of a Bad Environmentalist. Mm-hmm. And so how... You are someone who is concerned about environmentalism. You're drawn to like agricultural pursuits. This is important to you. But then, as we'll hear, you sort of bump up against this question of environmentalism sounds nice. Mm. But what's the complicated, especially, um, you know, the history of a, like Valley Crucis and just this area in general? What was this area you found yourself in? And how did that start to challenge your idea of what environmentalism was? Just before we go into hearing an excerpt from this fantastic piece. Yeah, so, I mean, I think when I moved here and when I all of a sudden had the land to plant a huge garden and I had the land to have chickens and sort of start this small homestead, um, this like little sort of micro farm, I found it much messier than we tend to think. Um, And so I, I, you know, had read a lot of pieces by Wendell Berry, by Barbara Kingsolver, by Joel Salatin. And I think in environmentalist circles and in agricultural activist circles, there's still this tendency to romanticize things. And so, you know, I thought having chickens was going to be this you know, wonderful, romantic, idyllic pursuit. And it turned out to be really messy and and kind of traumatizing sometimes, you know, like having to say, I had to kill a rooster recently um, because there was a full moon and one of our roosters just lost his mind and killed a hen and was attacking other hens in the middle of the night. And so we had to take him out and I'm you know I'm I'm not really a hunter or anything like that so it was incredibly difficult to me to have to kill an animal um right like managing livestock that the verb to manage (laughs) covers a lot of things that people don't like to think about yeah like you're not just like filling out the livestock's forms and like herding them into their like little spaces it actually means you oversee their life and death experiences yeah And you're making this calculation where, yes, I'm killing this chicken, but I'm killing this chicken specifically to protect the other chickens. So I'm sort of doling out death to avoid, you know, further death in the future. Um, So it's a, I think it's it's, an environmental decision. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, well, all decisions are environmental decisions, right? Yeah. Like every decision you make is a decision about your immediate environment and what impact it has on it or doesn't have on it. Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many examples with the chickens, with working in the yard, where I feel like I'm trying to be this great environmental steward, but to do it, I have to do things that feel very much sort of against that desire um, and against that impulse. Um, You know, we're having terrible problems with bears since the spring, um, and it's sort of like nature sometimes gets in the way of my ability to enjoy nature.
we go from there, let's hear an excerpt from this 2015, um, the Alex Albright Award in North Carolina Literary Review. Let's hear you read a bit of this because this describes your first coming to Boone and the first place you lived, which is not your current house, but you encountered all of these same problems about how you were going to live in this space and try to be an environmental steward. Okay, so this is the beginning of Boone Summer, Adventures of a Bad Environmentalist. As we're doing our first walkthrough of the house I rented in Boone, North Carolina, my wife freezes in her tracks, staring wild-eyed out the kitchen window. Is that a coyote, she whispers. I scramble to the back door, and indeed, ten yards away, there's a coyote standing on a rock, tall and proud, like it's the star of its own nature documentary. My wife and I huddle at the threshold, the door cracked just enough for us both to see. The coyote retreats several feet farther into the yard, and then at the edge of a creek that borders our property, he turns back and stares at us, nonplussed and defiant. After the coyote, we realize that the front porch is tattooed with active hornet's nests. Then come the ants in the recycling bin, and the rabbits in the garden, and the snakes in the grass, and the mice in the kitchen. Locals say that last year two black bears were seen on our mountain. One found dead by, by a hiker right behind our house, and one found alive, munching on our neighbor's chickens. A couple of years before the bears, we learn, the construction of a large apartment complex down the street drove dozens of rattlesnakes down off the mountain. Passing cars flattened the rattlers, and the blacktop ended up looking like a tattered snakeskin purse. I now dream of black bears. In walking my property, I step high and light-footed, always imagining rattles going off and fangs coming out. I have the good fortune of living next to a man named Larry, or as my landlord calls him, Mountain Man Larry. When I told my landlord that I moved here to be an English professor at Appalachian State University, he said, talk to Larry, there's a book there. Larry's about six feet tall with skinny but muscular arms and legs and a belly that looks like a small watermelon protruding low off of his abdomen. Every day, Larry wears the same outfit, jeans, boots, short sleeve plaid shirt, suspenders, and straw hat. Larry and his wife, Arlene, are retired he after working in shoe manufacturing for 30 years, and she after working most of her life at Walmart. At first, Larry was suspicious of everything I did, and perhaps he should have been, given how close our houses are to one another. Mine is an early 1940s craftsman bungalow that everybody calls a hundred-year-old farmhouse, although I see no evidence of a farm, and we're more than a couple of decades from the hundred-year mark. Larry lives in a trailer that sits about 30 yards in front of my house. Arlene's family once owned my house and the trailer and a house on the other side of mine. Larry's garage, which is twice the size of his trailer, is actually on my property. We also share a well and a driveway. During the summer, I talk to Larry nearly every day. He's bored and doesn't try to hide it. He drives to town to pay his bills in person on the exact day they are due. And he says that he hauls his own trash to the dump just for a reason to leave the house. My yard is big, two and a half acres of apple and pear trees, currant bushes, an enormous vegetable garden. I've been living in Boston for the past year and coming back to North Carolina, where I went to graduate school and lived for the past decade, meant returning to the soil 
returning to the outdoors, returning to hobbies that dirtied my fingernails and calloused my hands. The constant upkeep of the property means I'm outside a lot, and so is Larry. If I don't stop and chat when we see one another, Larry seems offended. Larry is pedantic, and I don't mean that to be insulting. He teaches me things, and he seems to love doing so, and I love learning from him, so it's a good arrangement. Larry's lived in Boone or hereabouts for his entire life, and he prides himself on knowing every back road in the county. Larry thinks that people who get caught in traffic are fools. Larry says, all in a huff, okay, they got a festival going on down the road. Don't take 105, take Baird's Creek to do it, Barnett. It's easy. Because Arlene's family is from here, and by here I mean my house and the houses around it, Larry knows the ins and outs of everything, and he relishes talking about who lived where and how they died. One day I asked Larry if he drinks the tap water here, my landlord expressly forbids drinking the water. Larry replies, we buy our drinking and cooking water, but Melba did. That's who lived in your house. She always drank the water and she lived to be 82. Each day, Larry seems less and less suspicious of my wife and me. When he sees how hard we work in the yard and how effectively we've tamed our wild garden, our status in his mind seems to go up. However, when he finds out I'm a professor at Appalachian State, my status goes back down. People in this county hate that college, she says. Thinking that that college is an enormous benefit for the county, I ask why. Traffic, he says. But then he smiles that knowing smile of his and continues, but traffic I can beat. I tell Larry that I'll be teaching classes on literature and environmental studies at Appalachian State. You a doctor, he asks. I tell him that my wife and I both have PhDs. Unimpressed, he says. I guess you work pretty hard for a couple of doctors. My two Australian shepherds shit all over the yard. I refuse to bag it and throw it away, both because I'm trying to produce less trash, especially plastic, and because I find it indescribably disgusting to pick up shit. So I go around with a shovel and scoop it up. Then I fling it around the perimeter of the yard. I'm not sure if there's any truth in this or where I heard it. But I imagine the dog shit will create a boundary around the property that coyotes will not transgress. My yard is full of snakes. I'm not scared of snakes necessarily, at least not in any sort of diagnosable way, but I do fear them, a healthy biological fear, I hope, and I absolutely despise stepping on them in the yard. Once while cutting the grass, I see Larry stalking around the boundary between his and my yard. I cut off my mower and covered in sweat and grass, I walk over to him. What you know, he inquires. I just saw two snakes in the yard, I say. One was a big black snake, and I think the other was a water moccasin. Did you kill him? He asks, looking concerned. No. Good, he says, because I just let a few of my snakes out for the afternoon. I pause for a second, unsure as I often am of whether he's messing with me. Ain't no water moccasins in Watauga County, he continues. How do you know? Well, my cousin would swear to Jesus there was, but I know for a fact there's not. I ask, what kinds of poisonous snakes are around here? Rattlesnakes, he says, although I've never seen one in the wild, and I've been all around. Copperheads, too. They're more likely to bite you, won't kill you, but sure make you wish you were dead. Larry points to the bushes that divide his property and mine. Used to be a nest of rattlesnakes right there. Again. 
I have no idea if he's joking. My house is full of mice. I've never experienced this before. The first couple of mornings that I wake up here, I find mouse turds all over the kitchen. I start setting mouse traps around the house. Apparently my landlord knows about the problem because he left about a dozen traps on the kitchen counter when we moved in. The traps are little pads covered in gel. Something about the gel, the scent I guess, attracts the mice. Then, as they walk across the pad, the gel is so sticky that they can't get free. When I put the first trap out in the cabinet underneath my sink, I don't actually think about what will occur when I catch a mouse. But of course, I catch one immediately. It's smaller than I thought it would be, and cuter. Just a little pinky-sized rodent that looks like a kid's cuddly toy. But I know it has to be killed, and I know I have to be the executioner. I've heard that people just throw the gel pads in the trash with the live mice still attached. One free friend even tried to assure me that they suffocate quickly. But I'm of the mind that if I'm going to be responsible for this mouse's death, I should kill it as quickly and painlessly as possible. After putting on a pair of latex gloves, I peer into the cabinet where the mouse is on its side, squirming back and forth on the gel pad. I try not to look at its adorable face. I hurriedly grab the gel pad with the mouse still attached and put it in a plastic grocery bag, then put this inside another grocery bag. I walk outside and place the bag on the driveway. I search the yard for a cinder block that I know I've seen around somewhere. When I find the block, I confront the double-bagged mouse. You can do this, I tell myself. This is humane. Mice carry diseases. They're pests. They can have the basement, but not the kitchen. I raise the block above my head and bring it down on the mouse. There's a loud and unexpected pop. For a second, I think its bones have exploded. Then I realize the grocery bags were full of air. The next day I tell Larry about the mouse problem. He launches into a story about one of his cousins, there's almost always a cousin in his stories, who caught a large black snake and put it in his basement to eat mice. Larry says that every time he went to visit his cousin, he would look into one of the windows in the house's foundation and see the snake sunning itself on the sill. One winter, however, Larry's cousin's snake was nowhere to be found, and the mice were showing up in the house again. So the cousin got another black snake and put it in the basement. Early the next spring, he saw two large black snakes sunning themselves in the window. A couple of weeks later, he says, the basement was overrun with baby snakes. Larry laughs as he finishes this story, and I wonder if this, like everything else he tells me, is a joke he's heard, or if it's a true story. But the anecdote, whether about his cousin or just some mountain lore, ultimately has the same message. A snake can perform the killing, or it can be done by a cat, or by an executioner, or by one's own hand, but the killing, regardless of executioner, remains the inevitable constant. Each morning I wake up and feed my dogs. Then as the coffee is brewing, we go out in the yard. The dogs sniff around, and in my bathrobe, I go to the garden and check on my vegetables. Today one of my young squash plants has died. I can see that it's dead right away. Its leaves, normally dark green and stiff and roughly the size of my hand, look ashen and limp. I kneel down next to the plant and see that its stalk has been cut in half. 
My mind goes red. I've been nurturing this plant for a month, feeding it, watering it, checking on it obsessively throughout each day, and now I'm profoundly saddened by the loss. When my wife wakes up, we stalk around the garden together, scouring the ground for tracks, not sure if something, bird, rabbit, chipmunk, ate through the stalk of the squash plant, or if something larger, raccoon, dog, bear, stepped on it. We see no tracks in the garden, a pile of shit out behind the garden fence. It looks sort of like our dogs, but we never let them go in this part of the yard because it's a dense, snake-filled jungle. Examining the shit, we consider whether it could be from a neighbor's dog, but it seems too small. Our neighbors behind us have two monstrous German shepherds. Could it be the coyote, my wife asks? No, I say. Then I spend the next half an hour looking at pictures of coyote scout on the internet. Could be, I conclude. We search for coyote tracks throughout the yard, but find none. I wonder, though, if I could even see, much less identify, coyote tracks if they were there. One day, my mother-in-law and I begin hacking away at the wildly overgrown wisteria vines behind my house. Just after cutting the first vines, we're startled by a dove that quickly flutters up beside us, exploding with that spastic cooing and beating of wings that seems unique to the species. Christ, I exclaim, my heart pounding. I didn't even see it there, my mother-in-law says. We go back to hacking at the wisteria, but now slower, more careful. A few minutes later, my mother-in-law kneels next to our pile of vines and branches, and then comes up holding a bird's nest. Two eggs are in it, both crushed. For days after this, the mother dove sits in the newly pruned wisteria topiary just outside our kitchen window. Prone to anthropomorphize, I can't help but think that she's mourning the death of her young. As I wash the dishes each evening, the dove just sits there, staring into the windows and, I imagine, judging me for her loss. To make matters even worse, or at least more ironic, we live on Dove Acres Road. This bird is the only dove I've seen in the yard, and somehow, in the few days I've lived here, I've managed to kill the next generation of doves at Dove Acres. When my wife goes out of town, I sit in the garden at sunset, drinking too much. I watch the veggies grow bigger and the apples in the trees overhead turning redder, and I listen. Not long after dark, the coyotes begin to moan, sometimes just beyond the garden and sometimes high up on the mountain. The farther away they are, the more lonesome they sound. Today I click on the coffee pot feed the dogs and stand, sleepy and a bit dazed, looking out the kitchen window. As my eyes slowly focus, I see that there's a large doe in the yard. This is the first deer I've seen here, and it terrifies me. The veggies in the garden are all starting to come in, and I know that a hungry deer or two could lay all to waste in a single feeding. The fence around the garden won't do any good. It's four feet high, an easy leap for a deer. Standing in the kitchen, I look squinty-eyed at the deer through the back door. She is 20 feet away, munching on the grass at the edge of the garden's fence. I gather my breath, leap from the doorway, charge the deer, and unleash a scream. There are no words, just a deep bellow as I dash toward her. She looks up and for a split second locks eyes with me before turning, running, leaping the creek at the edge of the yard and melting into the woods. Without thinking, I unzip my pants and piss in the exact spot where the doe had been eating. 
I cover the grass that is now close-cropped from her morning snack. From this day forward, I piss in the yard often, hoping my scent will make the grass in the garden unappealing to deer or any of the other myriad animals that live nearby. This becomes an obsession. I can't fully explain why, but I develop a system in which I spread the dog shit around the perimeter of the yard in a counterclockwise pattern, and I spread my own piss around the perimeter of the garden in a clockwise pattern. Each time nature calls, I remember my starting point based on the veggies position in the yard. Today, I piss rutabaga to pumpkins, and tomorrow, corn to tomatoes. In my academic life, I study environmental issues. Being an environmentalist in a city like Boston is easy. You feel virtuous because you recycle and take public transportation. Since there is so little nature around, you don't have to confront how disruptive humans are to the flora and fauna that we live amongst. Here in Boone, on one hand, I'm growing most of my own food, but on the other hand, I'm clearing truckload after truckload of plants from the yard. I'm chopping earthworms in half by the, uh, by the dozen each time I till or hoe, and I'm murdering mice and other creatures left and right. For a wannabe environmentalist, I'm not sure which option is better, Boston or Boone. interesting that uh, you develop a ritual where you're scattering dog shit and pissing around your yard every morning. Um, <laughs> it's probably not how you expected like that to go. It was unexpected. Um, and I, I had neighbors too, which sort of makes the whole episode. God, they must have thought you were insane. <laughs> I think I was insane, but I was so invested in this vegetable garden that I was willing to try anything. And I, like I say in the piece, I don't know where I heard this, but at some point, someone told me that it's a great, you know, way to detract, you know, any creature, rabbits or deer Did Larry or tell anything. you? Larry didn't, no. This is some deeper thought that I've had that might be erroneous, but I've possessed for a long time. So what is it, do you think, about spaces like this that even someone is at yourself who studies environmental literature like understands the history of this like construct of nature you were still so quickly seduced into this idea of nature with a capital n yeah yeah i mean and i and it's 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 really interesting because my i guess the sort of academic part of my brain has read you know all of the theorists that refuse to use the word nature anymore um you know, Donna Haraway very famously uses nature culture collapsed into one word to suggest that there is no way of separating that divide between the human world and the natural world or nature and culture. Um, and so I, I'm fully aware of that on one level, but at the same time, you know, as much as we can on a sort of in a cerebral way we can think about, okay, there, there this is a false distinction between humans and nature, but at the same time, the environment, which I think is a more sort of acceptable word because it can can take in built and non-built in environments or spaces, um, the environments are very different. It's very different the way you experience the world in Boston than the way you experience the world here. And in some ways, I think it's 
you can feel virtuous in those urban spaces because you don't have to confront things like oh god there's a copperhead in my yard now and i'm gonna kill it before it hurts me or the dogs or the chickens um same thing with what we were talking about earlier like if you know you're living in boston and you're just going to the farmer's market and you know buying your your dreamy you know free-range chicken eggs that you don't have to confront things like roosters killing your hens because there happens to be a full moon and they're going mad for some reason i would like to psa that in general it is best not to kill snakes in your yard ever <laughs> just just as a matter of interjecting i don't want that wisdom to start on about south your instinct may be to kill the snake nine times out of ten you should just move the snake will move on you will move on the snake will move on yeah like give it a path it doesn't want to deal with you either right like especially non-venomous snakes um yeah yeah we had a big compost pile in our yard at our old house and i guess because it's warm inside of the compost it would just it turned into basically a ball of gigantic black snakes that lived inside the compost pile so sometimes i would be in the garden you know just happily weeding or picking you know fruits and vegetables for dinner and i'd come across these black snakes and they're enormous mm -hmm. i mean they're like fully six feet long and just look terrifying but they're a fantastic you know boon for the garden in that you know they're gonna eat the rabbits or at least scare them away they're definitely gonna eat the mice and other rodents they're gonna they keep the chipmunks away poisonous snakes yeah or venomous snakes if they're yeah. out of control i mean yeah so the black snakes in particular are terrifying <laughs> but also really really good for the ecosystem that you're trying so hard to create that you're yeah that's the point right like you're trying to recreate something or create something it actually already exists yeah without you yeah but i want to be a part of it <laughs> <laughs> and i want to make it work for me you're like please let me come to your nature party yeah, like yeah all the animals are outside doing their thing and you're like please let me come nature with you yeah yeah <laughs> but that's but the you're, problem yeah. right but you're 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 disrupting these non-human facets of the of the world around you in order to try to live a more sustainable life. So I mean I think that's a lot of the irony that I'm trying to get at with this book project is just how messy and uncomfortable being an environmentalist can be. Um, so a lot of the book I think is it's trying to be honest it's trying to cut through the romanticism of the Wendell Berries and Barbara Kingsolvers of the world in order to say this is the boots on the ground sort of this is the way it looks when you're really in it and doing it and sometimes it's really uncomfortable and sometimes it feels like you're violating your most basic principles in order to live this principled life that you envision for yourself um, you know we're not living in the house that the story is about anymore but we just bought this property and we have huge plans for it in terms of having a little micro farm but a lot of the plans are going to involve not clear cutting necessarily but cutting down a substantial number of trees so that we can have the little you know idyllic micro farm that my wife and i want for ourselves so it's constantly, I think, the sort of calculation that I go through where I'm like, 
I'm going to do this disruptive thing in the name of good stewardship. And I hope that the calculation is ultimately more good than bad. But I'm not convinced that it is because I think humans are an invasive species. We're the worst invasive species the planet has ever known. So the book um, that I'm working on is guided by one basic question, which is, can you be a resource consuming and pleasure seeking human and also be a good environmental steward? And so there's sort of two prongs to my approach. One is just consuming resources. Like we need certain basic things to survive as creatures. We need food, we need shelter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the other part of it, and I think it's something that maybe makes my book slightly unique, is an emphasis on pleasure. Because we do a lot of things in this world that brings us a lot of ple pleasure, but also have really detrimental impacts on our environments. Um, so, for instance, I'm researching the Christmas tree industry in Western North Carolina, which involves lots of clear cutting, lots of destruction of biodiversity, and then to actually grow the, the trees, it requires really intensive use of chemical fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides. So it's an environmental nightmare, and yet it brings me a lot of pleasure to have a Christmas tree in my house. I'm not even religious, but I like it being there. It's a tradition. No, it's I part love of a Christmas culture. trees too. And I love coming to Western North Carolina and seeing Christmas tree farms. Yeah. They're and, adorable. And cutting your own. Appalachia has been such a resource extractive space for the entire country for so long. We don't see as much of that extractive economy in Western North Carolina. Why is that? Uh, my very smart colleague, Sandy Ballard, who is an Appalachian Studies um, expert and guru, she often says that Western North Carolina sold its soul to the tourist industry while East Tennessee sold its soul to the coal industry. And I think that had to do with politics being slightly more progressive in North Carolina years ago um, than they were in Tennessee. And so there were stricter environmental protections put in place in North Carolina than there were in Tennessee. I mean, it's not there's not coal in Western North Carolina, and it's not that mountaintop removal wouldn't work here, but environmental protections were put in place. Um, and I think it was a conscious choice to say coal is a very quick dollar to be made for the state, but it's not sustainable. And the more sustainable approach for the state is let's protect these mountains so that people want to come and live here or vacation here rather than let's blow the top of the mountains off so that we can get the coal today and then you know we'll be left with this um, heinous space and ruined economy um, in its aftermath. So I think North Carolina was more forward-looking than East Tennessee and East Kentucky and West Virginia in some regards. And what, then in some ways, okay, I'm a listener and I'm like, well, then that's great. 
like tourism is going to save the environment. Why is that also not true? I mean, I guess tourism is the lesser of two evils. Like, I think North Carolina chose the right path. Like, let's value these mountains. Let's, you know, create the Blue Ridge Parkway, all of that. And that's, it's more sustainable, but then it's problematic in its own ways. Because, you know, what we're seeing with the tourist industry is, you know, students can't find housing in Boone. Um, Professors, even though, you know, we're... I guess fairly solidly middle class or lower middle class we can't afford houses because we've been priced out because rich Floridians or you know wealthy people from the Northeast are now coming to Appalachia. Thank you for joining us this week. We'd like to thank Zachary Vernon and Margaret Bauer for allowing us to air portions of Zach's essay from the North Carolina Literary Review. You can find more about the North Carolina Literary Review at nclr.ecu.edu. We'll have a link on our website. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines produced and edited this week's episode. Ajua Danso is our co-producer and Lindsay Baker is our marketing director. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find him at brianhorton.com. We're off for our last one-week break next week, but we will be back on October 26th for a special Halloween episode on giant pumpkins. Until then, take care. We're having a really good time when we first bought this house about seven months ago with the birds. I mean, just like unbelievable bird populations and the, the variety of birds around here is incredible. So my wife and I had all of these bird feeders out. And then as soon as the bears wake up in the spring, they come along, I mean, nightly and just destroy the bird feeders and eat all the bird food. But they don't know it's not a bear feeder. No. no. It's not really their fault, right? They think, oh my God, these people, they left out this food for us. That's great. Yeah. So glad I've been asleep (laughs) for six months. I'm starving. Yeah. The same thing with the garden. You know, we don't have a big garden. Thank you.